Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of March 14th, 2018. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host as usual, and I am joined in a very special treat in studio by my fellow 538 sports writer, Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. What's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? You had a safe trip in from Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. It's snowier here than it is back I home. I know. So yeah. This isn't so bad. Or Chicago's not so bad for once. This mid-March snow I'm that we've been having. I'm yeah. so tired of this. Uh, and our regular third team member, Kyle Wagner, he isn't feeling so well today, so we wish him the best in uh, recovering quickly, but we're going to press on without him. And on today's show, we're going to be joined by a very special guest, former Cleveland Cavaliers GM David Griffin. He'll be on to talk about LeBron, this year's Cavs shakeups at the trade deadline, and what's it like to be a GM in today's NBA landscape. We also have a significant digit on the unfamiliar territory that the San Antonio Spurs currently find themselves in. But first, we're going to talk about what else can we talk about in basketball this week but March Madness. So yes, this is an NBA podcast, but for a few weeks each March, the college game becomes the center of the basketball universe. If you want to get some last-second help with your picks, because I know this uh, this podcast is going to go up maybe late Wednesday, early Thursday, so super last-minute help, uh, you can go to 538.com. We have a full tournament projection model that spits out each team's odds of winning each round. There is actually a new favorite in our model. After we first released it, uh, we had Virginia as the uh, favorite in the tournament, but then DeAndre Hunter was ruled out for the tournament with a wrist injury, and now now, Villanova is our most likely NCAA winner with an 18% chance of winning the championship. Uh, Chris, you are, I'm assuming, picking Michigan to win, right? I mean, I haven't watched enough basketball to pick anyone other than them. <laughs> uh, but I will say this. I, I mean, they've won nine in a row. It's similar to the way that they played last year. Uh, and I think they lost a game by one point in the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight last year against Oregon. Um, I really love them and their odds and their probability of winning. What I don't like, and I said this on Twitter last week, this is the Big Ten's fault. The Big Ten and their their aim to try to get more eyeballs on what they're doing and to try to expand the Big Ten beyond the Midwest, they decided to hold their conference tournament at Madison Square Garden, but Madison Square Garden wasn't open to have their tournament because at of the, the normal East. time because of the Big East. And so they moved the, they moved the entire Big Ten tournament up a week and Michigan stormed through that, gave them nine wins in a row. They dominated. They killed Purdue. They beat Michigan State for a second time. I'm pretty sure they had to have been the only team to beat Michigan State twice because Michigan State only lost four times. And it kind of feels all for naught to some extent because they've got such a long layoff now. And so I just wonder if they've had too much time off. And John Beeline was even kind of speaking to that, this idea that how hard do you practice guys to have them game ready but not – too hard you don't want to practice them too hard and have them tired but it's awkward it's very awkward to have that much time off so I I do feel like at some point that's going to hurt their momentum even though I love the bracket that Michigan is in yeah and it's kind of interesting that the one of the rationales for moving up a conference tournament you know even the championship game you saw a lot of them on Saturday uh, before selection Sunday this year was this idea of you don't want to have a team go through and win just a couple hours before the selection committee makes their pick because then they don't have enough time to maybe factor in what you've just done but I think in the case of the Big Ten and this wasn't done specifically with the committee in mind as much as it was to get the game in New York and and to kind of pick up uh, the the media attention from that uh, but like we said at the top this is an NBA podcast so we can't just shoot the breeze about the <laughs> tournament uh, without focusing on the top 
uh, pro prospects that might be able to advance deep into the brackets. And so um, our colleagues at ESPN.com actually did some research on this. They used our tournament model, and they matched it up to the latest mock draft and looked at the odds that we would see uh, some of the top ten picks uh, in the draft in the final four. So I wanted to run down the list just a little bit for the guys that, that we might be watching out for. Villanova, Michael Bridges, they have a 50% chance in our model wow. of making the final four. Duke, obviously, with uh, Marvin Bagley and Wendell Carter, Jr., 29%. Michigan State, Jaron Jackson Jr. and Miles Bridges, 25%. And then you get into some guys that we might not see for too long. I'm intrigued by Arizona uh, just because they seem really talented. Uh, and DeAndre Ayton is the guy that's sort of driving the, the majority of that. They only have a 6% chance of making the Final Four, according to our model. But that could change, uh, really, if they beat uh, Kentucky in in the second round. That's going to be a really interesting uh, game, assuming Kentucky can can move past Davidson. Uh, and then you also have some guys that have really low probabilities of going uh, deep into the tournament, which is kind of sad. You have Texas center Muhammad Bamba, 1%. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. from Missouri, who is all kinds of interesting because he's trying to yeah. come back uh, from missing most of the season with an injury. Didn't look too uh, good in the Big 12 tournament. Uh, 0.8% chance of being in the Final Four. Trey Young, obviously from Oklahoma, a lot of eyes are going to be on him, but uh, they also have kind of a tough draw. I mean, Duke uh, is waiting in the second round for Oklahoma if they can even make it out of the first round. Uh, they've been playing so poorly recently, 0.7% chance of making the Final Four. And then finally, Colin Sexton from Alabama, uh, 0.6%. So, Chris, I wanted to ask, uh, when, when you're kind of thinking about the tournament and watching, uh, what's the trade-off when scouting out these players uh, in terms of Letting these tournament games take on a lot of importance uh, when, when watching them versus looking at the rest of a player's body of work, because potentially for some of these one and done prospects, uh, a, a tournament run could represent like fifteen to twenty percent of the player's entire college resume. Uh, which and it's also coming against really tough competition for the most part, especially the deeper you go in. But then again, I could also see how you might be tempted to you know overvalue what you see from a player in. In such a you know big moment and, and and might be tempted to forget about some of the other uh, data that's probably a, a bigger sample for most of these players yeah I mean I, I think more of what you use this stuff for is to get a sense of how they look so I mean it, it's I remember watching I think a couple of years ago D'Angelo Russell play and he looked incredible, and I think they won one game and then lost the other. Ohio State. Yeah, and he looked incredible in one game in terms of the scoring ability. The second game he shot really poorly, but, I mean, everybody's going to have a bad shooting night. Um, the odds of a college player having a tough shooting night, especially if it's someone that's a smaller conference player who isn't used to playing against the athleticism or the height or the size of some of these other bigger programs, um, you don't take that much from it. I mean, it, yeah, obviously there are a ton of eyeballs on you. I think more than anything in the Twitter sphere, you see a lot of people saying, wow, this guy should go really high in the draft. And I, even Michigan last year, uh, Michigan has this big man named Mo Wagner, I think is from Germany. And he's really a mobile on defense, um, but he has really good footwork in the post offensively. And he really just kind of ripped somebody to shreds. I can't remember which game that was last year in the tournament, but everybody was like, man, this guy's a first-round pick. And, you know, it was the best game of his life. I watched him the whole season, and I'm like, this is still the guy that can't defend anybody, right? Yeah. And so, you know, most scouts and, you know, people that are looking at prospects, they know this already. It might jump out at them a little bit more, 
um, they might not have been honed in on just this guy as opposed to everybody, or you know, they might watch Michigan and they might be watching somebody else and then notice him. Uh, it's normally not just first popping up on someone's radar screen. Every now and then I think maybe it does. Uh, maybe a player's been injured and they come back around the time of the tournament or what have you. Uh, maybe it just kind of confirms what somebody already feels, and seeing them doing it against that level of competition only um, kind of ingrains that thought even more. But I, I don't think it's normally putting people on radar screens for scouts. I think it more so does it for fans. And, and so that's the big thing to remember here. Yeah, and I think it is maybe a little interesting in that comparison that you made where it, maybe it's not so much that if a guy plays really well in the tournament that you suddenly start vaulting them up. Although we have seen some guys' draft sure. stock rise on the basis of playing you know deep into the tournament. But maybe it's more that you start to, if you have questions about their ability to play against certain competition, uh, maybe for smaller school guys or ones that you know haven't necessarily faced certain matchups, maybe it could provide a little bit of a red flag or maybe cause you to right. do a little more digging when you're actually scouting them properly. Um, you know whether it's going back to the video to kind of confirm something uh, more so than saying, "Oh, well, let's just shoot this person up our draft board." Yeah, I, I don't, I don't see this changing where Trey Young gets drafted. I mean, he's. Although that will be fascinating. It will be fascinating to to see where he gets drafted. I mean, it's fascinating that they even made the damn tournament just based on how poorly they played at the end of the year. But, I mean, this isn't somebody that needs the exposure. This is someone that ESPN has been putting on TV I feel like every week, every other He's week. Definitely anyway. the most famous college basketball player this season, I think. I would think so. And I mean, for someone that's not going to be a number one pick for sure. So I, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly interesting. Um, but it's not like, like we both said, this is more about the guy that hasn't had an opportunity to play top level competition all season. And because of that, Scouts might be even more curious to see how he fares against that sort of competition. Yeah. And uh, I should say also, when we looked at um, kind of this machine learning, this fancy model that that we did in conjunction with Stats and Info a few years ago, trying to predict draft prospect success, we found that uh, a team, basically the schedule-adjusted offensive and defensive ratings of the school that a player was on were two of the five most important factors to consider. So it may be that may, the halo effect of NCAA tournament success is kind of correlated with how a prospect ends up panning out, even if it's not maybe causing it. It's it's sort of, if you're good enough to play on a team like that and the team shows success and you were a big part of that, that it does kind of come in. And, and it should also be said that age was... one. By far one of the most important factors uh, in a player's future NBA potential. So maybe it's worth watching the young uh, breakout type player. Like I remember Devin Booker. You know, maybe he's not the best example, but he didn't start a single game for that Kentucky that. team yeah. that went almost went undefeated. Uh, but he had some big moments in the tournament where he you know knocked down some shots, and he was easily one of the youngest players in in the in, in all of college basketball that year. And so you know, if we're looking for teams as they progress through the tournament. Uh, and and on some of these good teams, maybe it's the super young player who's kind of playing above a level where you would expect a player at that point in their career to to have success. That that's the one that you really should actually think about elevating or taking a second look. Right, at. Tyus Jones stands out to me as that yes. guy from from Duke. He was not by any means. I don't even think a top two, top three player from yeah. that team necessarily. Um, but you look at it, and then he has a great. I th- was it the championship game he played great in, and just the fact. I mean, he was. Uh, a pretty savvy point guard, but 
all sorts of small when you look at him compared to other guys like Justice Winslow. There were still some people, I guess, that thought that Jaleel Okafor was the best player in the country at the time or should have been the number one pick. And so at best, you're looking at someone that might be, um, you know, a third best player on your team. A lot of people at that point, especially in that game, were really high on Grayson Allen and the questions about whether or not he should come out. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think about now that, yeah. uh, you know, if he had come out then, he would have been picked in probably the first round right. of the draft. And now maybe he's a second round pick, uh, or yeah. if, maybe at most. But, I mean, you look at that and, and I'm sitting there wondering. And, and honestly, I mean, this is going to out me a little bit, thinking that when Tyus Jones got drafted by the Timberwolves, that to some extent, that was kind of, or I, I, I think he got maybe drafted by Cleveland and then traded to the Timberwolves. I can't remember offhand, but the fact that Minnesota ended up with him and the fact that he's from Minneapolis, I thought, man, they're taking the hometown kid. <laughs> hometown discount. Really, we're doing that with him, and, and and the fact that you know his upside. Yes, he's young, and yes, he has room to grow, but that he's so small and that he's not overly athletic. And thinking to myself, man, you know, like he's really, really smart, and I think he's a pretty good shooter. But I, I just think that this could turn out to be a wasted pick. He's a good player. I mean, yeah. I, I actually think he's one of the more underrated players in the league. And, I mean, has kind of uh, started this, you know, almost borderline protest with, with T-Wolves fans now that they just signed Derrick Rose. And the fact right. that, you know, the thought that maybe Derrick Rose would take minutes away. I mean, every game now, I think it's only been two games since Derrick Rose uh, signed there. But... I have so many Timberwolves fans and analysts that I follow that have just been, you know, basically coming up with pitchforks uh, <laughs> about the Derrick Rose situation, him getting into games. Now, granted, Thibodeau, at least the first game they played against Golden State um, with Rose there, um, he played Tyus Jones and Derrick Rose together. I think maybe last night might have been the first time that they weren't playing together and people were furious because Derrick Rose just becomes a negative so quickly on the court. But Tyus Jones, that's how good he's become. Uh, just kind of solid on both ends of the floor, never turns the ball over, great assist-to-turnover ratio, good defender for how small he is, and fans have taken a huge liking to him there. Yeah, he's 13th in uh, real plus-minus wow. in the entire league wow. right now. I mean, I don't know how much you buy that uh, necessarily on face value, but it does speak to just how well he's played this season, and he was the fourth leading scorer during the season on that Duke team uh, behind Jalil Okafor, Quinn Cook, and Justice Winslow. And, you know, Okafor's had some trouble. Cook is just kind of a backup and Winslow Who is. Who would have guessed it <laughs> to this point? And I, don't, I know this is not totally accurate, but of that team, Tyus Jones and Quinn Cook have arguably had better careers than Justice, Justice Winslow, Winslow and, and Jalil, Jalil Okafor. Okafor right. I mean, Winslow has been injured. Uh, Okafor... I mean, and he's starting to come around. He is starting bit. to come around. I mean, very quietly, shooting and Cook the ball is in very a well. situation where you know so much talent around right. him that it, it's helped him. But it does go to speak to just some of the difficulties. I mean, the model that I referenced when I was talking about the the predictions of players loved it. Some Justice Winslow. At I the did time. too. I, I, mean, I was he saying looks, he should have been taken yeah, over Porzingis for a while, right? As like a Knicks such writer. a great uh, great player. Still, you know, I think uh, he has all the tools. Uh, but it does go to. Show Show how difficult it is to predict these things, and we're not saying that necessarily. When you see the next Tyus Jones come out, you should jump all over that on the basis <laughs> of a few tournament games. But it does kind of, you know, everything needs to go in the hopper when considering a player's potential. Okay, let's leave things there with the tournament. We'll probably come back to it and kind of unavoidably have to talk about it at some point over the next few weeks. But first, let's move on to our conversation with David Griffin. 
Okay, now we're very happy to be joined by our guest for this episode. He was the general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers from 2014 to 2017, and now he works as an analyst for NBA TV and Sirius XM Radio. David Griffin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, guys. Glad to do it. So how you doing? Uh, first, I wanted to ask, how has uh, post-Cavs life been treating you uh, these days? Well, it's good. It's certainly a whole lot less stressful. Um, <laughs> enjoying the media thing quite a bit. Um, I, I just really enjoy learning something new, quite frankly. I was in the NBA for 25 years, and uh, I think I'd gotten to the point where I was somewhat institutionalized. So it's it's nice to, to learn some things and, and look at everything with some fresh eyes. That's great. Um uh, so now as a uh, as an observer from the outside, obviously you've probably been asked this a lot, but we have to talk about this year's Cavs team uh, from from your perspective. What did you think about the big shakeup at the trade deadline for the team? Was it something that the team just needed on the basis of, you know, how how their play was flagging and, and how, you know, LeBron seemed sort of sort of out of it at the time? Or is that something that, you know, as an outsider, it was tough to see because you did bring in some of those players that that kind of got uh, shipped away. Well, it's both. It was it was tough to see, particularly as as it pertained to Channing Fry, uh, because I, I think he is a big key to to what we achieved there. He was so critical to us in the locker room uh, the year we acquired him. He really had a a big role in in changing sort of what we were culturally. It became a much more enjoyable experience to play with that group when Channing and RJ sort of teamed together to to be pillars in that locker room. So I felt bad for Channing. But it was something that they absolutely had to do in terms of the package that they put together because they were spiritually broken. And and what they did was really start over again to some degree. And if they acquired nothing else, they acquired a LeBron James that was more spiritually engaged. And that was really the, the key to what they did, I think. David, when you look at a, a situation like that, I, I, there's a part of me that wonders and, and – it's kind of we have a, a projection model that kind of gives teams certain probabilities to make the finals or to make it um, to the playoffs and what have you. And yeah, the Cavs I like it, by for, the way, it's very good. <laughs> Thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm glad you like it. Um, we we like it too, but we we also get a lot of um, tweets and messages from people that basically say we can't trust you guys anymore because you know last year you guys said the Cavs had a 10 percent uh, probability to make it, and then obviously you know the Cavs made the finals anyway. Um, and I think part of the reason that it, it, what it struggles to pick up on is a lot of the stuff that you see and you've seen up close where the team might go through a, a cold spell for a while, whether it's kind of rooted in effort, whether it's the chemistry on the court, what have you. But obviously Cleveland has kind of bounced back each time. And, and even in Miami with LeBron, that was true of, of his teams there as well. Um, is there, how do you kind of overcome the idea of saying, we'll get out of this funk because LeBron is here? Or is that something that kind of fans look at, but that is an, is an executive that you kind of don't have in your mind? The, kind of the balance between you know, changing something too quickly versus the idea that LeBron can kind of figure things out himself? Well, I think, so it's interesting. I think one of the things that the model doesn't pick up, it, it's not just the effort level. It's it's how much better a particular team feels they are than the rest of their conference and, and sort of the complacency they have. And the fact that, you know, what we did for the three years that I was there and went to the finals was really err on the side of caution all the time in terms of health, 
we rested guys an inordinate amount of the time because we were sort of looking at it as we're going to make it to the conference finals and we need to be the best version of ourselves we can be when we get there. And unfortunately, what that meant was a couple things. One, it meant that we probably weren't playing with anywhere near the level of focus or urgency in the regular season that would make the model believe that we were really good because we weren't blowing out the teams that we should have blown out. And that hurt us two different ways. One, we weren't building the kinds of habits that you would need to have to play a really good team like we did when we played Golden State with Durant. We didn't get better enough during the course of the year to be ready for that team. We could have been good enough to beat that team had we actually improved all of, all of that season, and we didn't because we continued to be so complacent and we were looking towards the end of the season too much. So I did a very poor job of calibrating us, I think, to get better every day. We, we just didn't focus on that enough, I think. And, and the model can't show that. The model can't show how much better you really are than you're playing. And it also can't account for the difference in regular season LeBron against Brooklyn and finals LeBron against Golden State because the level of effort that he puts into it personally there's no bigger gap in the NBA among great players between him on and him off. And that's why I believe, with utter and complete clarity, he's the best player in the NBA. Because when he raises his level, he gets to a point that nobody can get to. And his just kind of walking around level of urgency still makes him at least second or third best player in the NBA. So it's, it's a fascinating experience to be part of that. The expectation when LeBron is on your team is that you're going to go to the finals. I think that's very difficult for teams. Um, and I, I think it's difficult psychologically for people who haven't been in that environment. And I think the first group the Cavs had just weren't really fitting in emotionally with what that experience is going to be like. And unfortunately, as I said, we never really found the right balance, I don't think. Yeah, I wanted to ask, uh, you, you mentioned that it was almost like this trade-off between playing at your hardest to kind of ramp up for the playoffs, even in those kind of Brooklyn games, those those meaningless regular season games, versus this idea of keeping everyone healthy. Is that something that I assume is even more exacerbated on a team that's one of the oldest in the league, and you do have these considerations where you have to kind of save whatever gas you have in the tank for the playoffs. But like, what's that balancing act like where you, you do want to get meaningful reps during the regular season, but also you have to save something uh, with a team constructed the way it was? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't even know if it's as much saving something as it is you have a much finer margin for error when you're older. We didn't really look at it in terms of saving something in the tank, although I do look at winning a finals as winning a war of attrition over time. We didn't really look at it as saving ourselves so much as we just had a very fine margin for error. And when we weren't locked in and focused and our togetherness couldn't overcome our lack of length and athleticism and youthful legs, we looked worse. And when we were really locked in mentally and emotionally and we were keyed in on being where we needed to be, we were good enough defensively, collectively, that we could overcome our lack of individual athletic talent, let's say. But I think that's one of the big differences between young, good teams and teams that become great is that they can have a level of mental focus and togetherness on the defensive end 
that younger teams don't necessarily have. And as they grow and evolve and learn how to win together, it's that mental side of things that they get better at. And is that one of the hardest things as an executive when you're building a team to predict or, or even kind of measure? Like, how, how do you take the temperature of that sort of, you, you've referred to it as like the spiritual nature of a team, uh, that, that togetherness factor that I assume you can't really measure from the outside, especially when you bring in, you know, new players like Isaiah Thomas and people like that. You're trying to put them in and kind of figure out the chemistry. That seems like something that happens on the fly and you can't really account for it until you get those guys on the court together and in the locker room together yeah you can do a lot of work ahead of time in terms of your intel and what you know about them as a human being and what you know about them uh, in terms of their willingness to play a role up to that point but you can't really know what it's going to look like until you see it and so I was with the team all the time because I was very very keen to this notion that if we're all bought in and we all accept the roles we need to play we can achieve something really special but if any of us are not pulling in the right direction, it's going to fall apart. So I was more present probably than most general managers with the team because this notion of the spiritual makeup of a group and everyone's buy-in level was much more important with the team that was built the way we were because, again, we had a finer margin for error. We didn't have the kind of length and athleticism that would fly around and make up for mistakes. So if you weren't completely bought into what you were supposed to do, we were going to make more mistakes than we were capable of overcoming. I, I guess that's something that I was curious about. Um, you know, that was the question that so many of us had. And part of the reason that our projection model was kind of so relatively low on the Cavs last year is that there there was the the, the defensive concern, uh, especially during the second half of the season, uh, where I think the team was a net negative uh, for a solid month or so, which is really unusual for championship caliber teams. And a lot of that, uh, the defensive concerns have kind of carried over into this year, obviously with a different roster, um, the trades that were made to try to address some of that. But even now, looking at them, I think they're four and six over their last 10 or something like that. Um, how how much of it is still a little bit of a Obviously, trade is a gamble. But when you look at something like that, and then you have to try to rebuild the chemistry or build new chemistry with new guys, you, you've been through that where you've traded – uh, to try to address defensive concerns, brought in Mozgov, brought in Shumpert, brought in JR from New York. Um, how how challenging is it to try to build and to develop new chemistry with guys like that with only a month and a half or two months left in a season? It, it would be impossible if your best player was anyone other than LeBron. He tends to make people better to such a huge degree that he's able to bring things together very quickly if everyone's on board emotionally. What I think makes their their challenge particularly difficult this year is they've been doing this with new guys in the absence of Kevin and Tristan. So now those are going to be basically two new guys since the trade. And Kevin is so vital to that team in terms of his ability to space the floor, be an elite defensive rebounder, start their break with his outlet passing. The things he does are essential to LeBron's success. So these players that have been playing in the absence of Kevin haven't even really seen what it's supposed to look like when it's done well and when they're playing at a high level because they haven't had one of the most important cogs in the wheel. So I, I think it's going to be really, really difficult for them to have enough time altogether to get on the same page 
And again, if not for LeBron, I would say this team can't possibly get to championship caliber quickly enough. But he, he allows for you to do more from a team-building standpoint than you really think is possible. So if it can be done, it's, it's going to be because he brings it all together that quickly. But I'm skeptical at this point. Do you is there any one common theme? I mean, maybe it is just kind of the locker room stuff that it seemed like was becoming more and more public, whether it was through leaks or, or even just outright quotes that you were seeing from guys like Isaiah. Um, but what what kind of common theme were you seeing, if if at all, with with Jr. Tristan? Obviously, has not been healthy this season, um, not really ever completely healthy. But there have been a, a number of guys that are kind of just having down years. It, it, what would you attribute that to, or is it just kind of the way the ball bounces to you? Well, I, I do think there was something of a malaise around the team in the off season. I think there was a lot of uncertainty coming into the year. Uh, a lot of players probably bought into that emotionally. I, I think Jr. has gotten to the point as he's gotten older where he can't take off as much time as he does in the off season because he tends to get injured getting back into shape, which I think has been a problem for him as he's gotten older. But I think it was it was a lot of different things sort of all coalescing. You know, in some ways. Uh, teams are, are the perfect storm when they're good and when they're bad. And I think everything just sort of weighed down on itself at, at some point during this season. And, and eventually it just gets to the point where you don't have enough ability to overcome things spiritually anymore. And you're not buying in to the degree you need to. And it just sort of snowballs. And I think JR is has really struggled the vast majority of the year from a health standpoint. He's struggled with his shot making, so then he loses confidence. Tristan is very similar. He struggled with his uh, health, which has then hurt him from a confidence standpoint. And it, again, it all just sort of has snowballed for them in that way. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that uh, off season of malaise, which was sort of you were on the way out as that was getting underway, and the Kyrie trade happened after you had already left. But that does seem to be sort of the the, the catalyst or the original sin of some of the problems that faced the Cavs this season and sort of led to that big sell-off at, at the trade deadline. And, uh, when, when you're talking about somebody like a Kyrie Irving and you're trying to get equal value for them in a trade, how difficult is that, especially when they're you know 25-year-old star you know, kind of in their prime? That must be one of the toughest spots to be in as a GM. I know you didn't work out that deal, but you've mentioned that you put in contingency plans uh, for, for the next regime and, and kind of are, we're constantly probing that. Is that sort of one of the more difficult things that you have to do is if you're in a position where you have to trade a star like that, trying to figure out, well, what can return on that trade uh, most most effectively without destroying the team? Well, first of all, you never have to trade a star like that. Um, I think they were in a situation where they felt like they needed to do that. It had gotten to the point where that was the only thing that could could really solve the situation. I think if there's an original sin in all of this, it's, it's that that was ever made to be the situation in the first place. And when you're in a situation where you're going to finals and you win a championship, there tends to be more organizational stability than we had. And I think that in and of itself brings about its own subset of problems. And it certainly brought up issues relative to Kyrie and his agent's relationship with the organization. And that's really what sort of starts the snowball rolling in the wrong direction. I think in in the situation with Kyrie, I felt like they made the best trade possible given the variables that they were playing and the cards that they were playing. But I also think 
it potentially didn't have to get to that point as well. And that's where great organizations, I think, end up in a better situation in terms of their sustainability because those issues never become quite that urgent and they never become quite that irritant to either a player or a team. And one of the greatest examples of that, and I was actually talking to Brent Barry, who I work on NBA TV with about this today too, you know, San Antonio has been as elite as you can be for better than 20 years. And they finally started to have some of these types of issues with LaMarcus Aldridge in the offseason. You know, it came out that he had demanded to trade, and then the Kawhi Leonard situation. These things happen in all sports and all organizations, with the possible exceptions of New England and San Antonio over the last 20 years. And the really good ones deal with it when it happens. And unfortunately, I just think they were in a situation where the the organization's relationship with Kyrie and Jeff Wexler wasn't what it needed to be at the time that they were going through that to overcome it. And how much of that turmoil do you think also stems from just the sheer pressure there there is to win from year to year with LeBron? Because it seems like he is just signing these very short term deals, and at any time can kind of uh, you know move on to a different location. It seems like there's an immense amount of pressure to kind of focus in and make these short term moves that then seem like they can use use the term snowball. It does seem like those can also snowball when you're so focused on just you know keeping him happy and kind of bringing that core back year by year almost. Yeah, I don't think the pressure of that really brings itself to bear on players. I think it does make you as an organization be very myopic. It makes you be very much about here and now and much less about sustainability. And and that's complicated. It's it's almost impossible to build to win championships one year at a time and continue to remanufacture what made you great the year before. You know, you felt like you had to keep coming up with a rabbit out of your hat. It's just not a sustainable, organic model that makes any sense whatsoever. And unfortunately, with LeBron going one year at a time, that's the position he put the organization in. And it's unfortunate because in many ways, if he would have approached it differently, I think the organization might have been able to be better in terms of being more sustainable and building towards a level of greatness that might have been even better than our peak of of winning the championship. And that's interesting because um, I've been reading this book uh, called The Blueprint, which you were quoted in, about sort of all of the things that had to go into place to to bring LeBron back and sort of build this championship core that you guys had. And that was like a multi-year sort of planning process that that took place in like all of these different stages. And so it is interesting that like it takes so long to get to that point. And then once you are at that point, it is about these very short term deals to sort of keep a championship core together. But I guess maybe that's the nature of the NBA these days. It seems like you have to hatch these plans many, many, many years in advance and kind of hope that they work out. Yes and no. So I think it's the I think it's the nature of the NBA to plan to have cap space available. I think it's the nature of the NBA to identify who your free agent targets will be. I think it's unique to LeBron that he could be in a situation where he was so powerful he could demand one-year contracts. That's totally unique. I, I think he's the only player to this point. Kevin Durant now has done the same thing. It, up at the time, up till the time that LeBron was going through this free agency, that had never really happened. So the level of power he wields by being able to do one year at a time, because financially he doesn't need to secure the five-year deal 
to feel comfortable. He's so big with Nike. His off-the-court money is so significant, he didn't need the five-year stability of a contract. Nobody plans for that right now in the long term to be going after a free agent that will turn down your long-term money. That's not what the planning originally was. So now that we've arrived at this point, and LeBron and, and KD has sort of ushered that period in, I think you'll see more of that, and it will make teams more mindful of saving cap space to go after someone who, if they do want to do one year at a time, makes all of that long-term planning potentially about one run. It's just a horrifically inorganic yeah. way to run a team. <laughs> Yeah, and how does that change your mentality as like a, a GM? You know, you were there for a while, even including some of the, uh, the time that you spent as an assistant GM. And the league seems like it's really changed a lot uh, in, in the time from when you started to today's game. Especially since those players that you talk about, the LeBrons and the KDs that are taking the shorter deals, those are the players that dictate, you know, where the direction of the league goes and, and where championships go. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and I, I, think, it's, I think it's changed. I, I don't think it's changed completely. I, I think it's many of the things that we did and many of the things that we were modeling, having modeled them after Seattle, Oklahoma City, by way of example, and subsequently ending up winning a championship that way, we were really doing the Philadelphia tanking model we just didn't go as all in on it as Philadelphia did from a verbiage standpoint. We didn't have that same rhetoric around it, but we were attempting to do the same thing that San Antonio had once done, Seattle, Oklahoma City had done. I think teams built star teams because Boston had acquired a star team. I think teams believed they could go get free agent stars, studded teams because Miami had done what they did. So everybody starts to emulate the next thing. I think what we did in Cleveland has has been significant in terms of the way the game is now being played because there were three years of teams trying to figure out how to beat LeBron and Kevin and Kyrie and, and trying to beat that team. So it's sort of brought about some of the change that's happened to some degree as well. And I do think it makes it very, very difficult if you're going to be courting a free agent who's going to have the power to ask for a one-year contract. From an ownership standpoint, you have to be willing to say no. You have to be willing to be dedicated to this is what we're building and this is what we want to be about. And if you want to do a year at a time, we don't feel like that's the best way to run our organization. And that's very complicated, obviously. It's, nobody's going to say no to getting a player of that magnitude very often. That that would have been uh, really interesting to watch play out, especially with how I'm sure a lot of Cleveland already feels about Dan Gilbert. Um, so one one question that I have kind of, uh, pivoting now toward the rest of the NBA and the rest of the season. Obviously, the Rockets have kind of been a huge, huge story. They have the best record in the league. As you look forward now, Steph probably missing the next week or two at least. Um, it, it seems likely now that the Rockets will probably finish the season with the best record in the NBA. Um, that's a team that, you know, for a lot of, for a while, people kind of uh, viewed as star hungry. Um, and kind of was constantly chasing a star. They obviously went after Chris Bosh. Um, you know, there's already talk about them being interested in trying to bring in LeBron, who wouldn't be. Um, but when you look at them, that's a team that has kind of never really bottomed out, but has found found ways to bring on new stars. Uh, Dwight Howard obviously being on that list as well when they got him. Um, the way that they've built that team, and, and now the fact that they are a very legitimate contender to the Warriors, 
what stands out to you about the way that they've built and kind of, you know, uh, borrowing very heavily, I guess you can't even call it borrowing, given that Mike D'Antoni is the coach there, uh, someone that you worked with, obviously. Um, that that team, what what would you say about their chances this year, given how different they are and kind of how differently they've built that team? So I think they've they've built it in a, in a way that makes sense in terms of the patience they've shown. They've built it in the way, in much the same way that Boston has built they they've done it over a period of time so that they they were always mindful of the future and still being somewhat caretakers of the present i think it's a much easier way to sustain success if you've got a slow burn to get there and you have a core group that learns how to win together you improve from within so much in those circumstances during the course of a year that it's a much easier way to to build towards long-term prolonged success so I, I really give Daryl and his staff a lot of credit for what they've been able to achieve, even at times when things were, were touch and go for, for him personally, perhaps. They never made moves that seemed desperate, really. I mean, they, they've been able to avoid the big desperate swing that doesn't go well, that sets them up for a long-term failure. And I think that's the most important thing. When it comes time to flip the switch and try to be good, if you spend the wrong money, it takes longer to recover from that than not doing it. And I think what they did was they never put themselves in harm's way in, in such a way that they couldn't be flexible. And what they have now, the reason I think they're such a legitimate threat, is that they've got a group with Mike D'Antoni as the coach and Daryl Morey running the operation where they're very much in lockstep. And they're getting the full bandwidth of what Mike is capable of because he and Daryl are such a good fit for each other. Mike buys in completely to what Daryl's trying to do and vice versa. And if those two people can be in lockstep in any organization, all you need other than that is ownership. And, and that troika can lead you almost as far as you want to go for as long as you want to do it. Now, obviously, winning a championship is a very difficult thing. And in those circumstances, you have to be luckier than good sometimes. But you can always be in and around it if you've got a group like they have. And they're built to be sustainable. And does that sustainability kind of offer a little bit of an antidote to, you mentioned the Sixers as sort of this archetypal team at the other end of the spectrum where they tanked and they were pretty open about it. Uh, and they're also doing quite well this year and, and look like they're going to make the playoffs uh, for the first time in a handful of years. Uh, and I think there was a lot of fear among uh, people in the league that, you know, the success of a team like that might prove that tanking is sort of the way uh, that teams should build. Do you think the Rockets kind of provide maybe an antidote to that where it's like, look, it is possible to build from the middle if you're patient enough and your owner has enough buy-in and you kind of make the right move for the right superstar at the right time? That seems encouraging to those of us that don't want to see the league go toward this kind of tanking uh, mindset. I agree with that. I, I think, again, I mentioned Boston. I think they're the best model for that. Um, the way Danny has, has handled his, quote, rebuild or reload, as the case may be, I think is very much uh, going to be the model that people employ moving forward. What they did really well and what was unique about the Boston experience was bringing in Brad Stevens to build a culture of accountability and attention to detail so that when they did get elite talent, they just assimilated into that existing culture. And it's really, really important to do that when you're not winning because if that's your baseline, as new talent comes in, they're going to be much more uh, 
likely to, to fall in line. And I think Houston did some of that, but not really. Mike was completely different than what they were doing from a coaching perspective before. It's just Mike's system works so well to play to the greatness of Harden that they're a perfect fit for each other. But that's really difficult to model. And, again, we'll see how much playoff success they have as well. Because if they're really successful in the playoffs, that'll make people put a lot more emphasis on what they've done. But I think what makes... Houston's thing more difficult to replicate is that so much of it is predicated on the relationship between Mike's system and the way James likes to play and frankly Mike's willingness and ability to craft a system around James. You know, Mike is one of very few people with the offensive mind who could have done what he did with James. So it's not like you can say, "Oh, well we'll just do XYZ." Because if you don't have the right coach and the right star player, you can't replicate that. Right, yeah. It still seems like it's kind of hard. You have to hit on something kind of lucky and and fortuitous no matter what, it seems like. Uh, So the last question I wanted to ask was, just in the big picture from your time as a GM in the NBA, what were the biggest lessons that you kind of took away? And and how did things evolve for you in in your team-building philosophy over time? And and how much did something like analytics even factor into that uh, as you were kind of, you know, making your way as as an executive in, in, in an NBA front office? Oh, analytics was enormous in in what we did. Um, Going back to the time that we were in Phoenix, uh, the reason I was even brought into basketball operations in the first place was that I was doing things from an analytics standpoint that we were giving to our writers. We were doing things in our game notes that were somewhat interesting to Brian Colangelo, who was a young general manager at the time. And Brian really bought into some of those things. And oddly enough, Golden State was going to create a position to bring me in. Gary St. Jean's and Gary Fitzsimmons were going to bring me in to do some of those things. And Brian created a position in the video room to keep me with the cat or with the Suns organization. And It was because of the analytics that weren't even really known as analytics at the time. It was just this weird numbers thing Griff does. (laughs) And in in our situation, that's that's what it was considered. Um, And then we grew and evolved and I think got to the point where we did some meaningful things from an analytics standpoint. But our teams in Phoenix were built very much around that. And it was because of Mike. It was because of the way he envisioned the game being played that we really put a lot of emphasis on on certain statistical metrics and and things that we were absolutely building our team towards. So as I continued to grow and evolve in the business, went to Cleveland that had far more financial bandwidth, was able to put far more staff to work in this area, people that were radically brighter than I am. Uh, Dan Rosenbaum and Dave Lewin were there at the time on the analytics side. I grew and evolved quite a bit that way. I learned quite a bit. So as we continued to go along, I tried to assimilate as much of that into what we did as possible. I don't feel like data is an answer in and of itself, but the better teams ask better questions to have the data reveal better answers. And I really think it all just comes down to the quality of questions you're asking the data to answer. It's it's not about who has the biggest pile of information. It's it's who's trying to get to the answer to the better questions. Awesome. Well, uh, as as 538ers, we always appreciate uh, those kinds of attitudes about data in the game. And uh, David, I just want to say thanks uh, so much for being on the show and joining us today. Thank you very much, guys. Enjoyed it. That was David Griffin. He used to be the GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers, and now he works as an analyst for NBA TV and Sirius XM Radio. 
So right now we're going to move on to close out the episode with a segment we like to call Significant Digits. But first, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor. Can healthy food also be delicious? With Sunbasket, the answer is yes. Forget protein shaking and flavorless diet food. Start cooking fresh, healthy meals with delicious organic produce thanks to Sunbasket. Sunbasket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. You'd be like me and have practically none. Sunbasket still can help. And now you get more options than ever. Just go to Sunbasket's app and pick from 18 weekly recipes. You can easily cook dishes like steaks with chimichurri and harissa with roasted sweet potatoes. There are paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, family options, and more. Sunbasket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafood. And the best part? Sunbasket is delivered in perfect portions with reliable nutrition information and it's ready to whip up in about 30 minutes. There's something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle with Sunbasket. Go to sunbasket.com slash the lab, T-H-E-L-A-B, one word, today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash the lab for $35 off sunbasket.com slash the lab. Now it's that time in the show where we bring you a number from around the league that caught our eye, whether it's an emerging trend, maybe it's just noise, or maybe it's just interesting to us. And Chris, you are presenting this week's SIGDIG because you're here in the studio. <laughs> the, the perks of being present as opposed yeah. to being on the phone. All right. So this week's SIGDIG that we have is 1997. You look at that, and that's the last season in which the San Antonio Spurs were outside the top eight in the Western Conference this late in the season, according to the Elias Sports Bureau. Currently, they're tied for eighth in the conference with the Utah Jazz, and they would fall to ninth place on a tiebreaker if the season were to end today. So that was also the last time they missed the playoffs. They've had a streak of 20 straight postseason appearances, which is tied for the third longest in history. So that was the Tim Duncan uh, draft year, like the year David Robinson was injured for practically the whole year. They sort of did like a proto-tank almost, like they were. <laughs> they, they kind of decided, because they had been very successful with, with Robinson and, and Rodman and Avery mm-hmm. Johnson and those folks, and they just sort of like, once Robinson was out, they kind of took the year off, and then the lottery balls famously did not go the Celtics way. They went in favor of the the Spurs, and they right. were able to land Tim Duncan. But it's amazing to think that that was the last time that they've been outside of playoff position on whatever it is, uh, March 14th, uh, up until right now, today. That's crazy. It's insane. It, it also tells you a lot about the way things are broken in the NBA. Um, that Celtics team, I mean, that, if I remember correctly, that was a year where I think Rick Pitino, Rick Pitino took the job with the Celtics based on the the impression that he had that they would get the number one pick, and then they didn't. Uh, they were planning to take Tim Duncan. They didn't get him. I think I want to say they took Chauncey Billups instead, maybe. Am I making that up? I think that's right. Uh, he definitely we, was on that team. Check. Um, but just you know how much that changed for him because he – basically has said in hindsight that he probably wouldn't have taken the job or wanted to take the job had he realized that they weren't going to get Tim Duncan. So that's interesting. The fact that the Spurs were kind of ahead of their time in the sense that they, you know, they were actually a pretty decent team, if not a good team beforehand. They lose someone to an injury. And I think that's part of the reason that they have so many people spooked this year. I think a lot of people would actually prefer that the Spurs make the playoffs, especially fans of bad teams, because just kind of this ugly 
kind of feeling that they have in the pit of their stomach that if the Spurs miss the playoffs, that they're going to win the lottery <laughs> and be able to add, you know, whether it's Ayton or, or Donkic or, or, or whoever it is, that someone is going to end up with the Spurs and, and be a running mate for Kawhi Leonard and LaMarcus Aldridge and Greg Popovich, which nobody wants that. For the you know, or else we're going to have another twenty years of the Spurs being the best team in the league. Although, know? if this were really like kind of a pop master plan type thing, they would do it next year, right? When the odds get better for teams, that, they flatten out for teams that uh, that get better for them that miss the playoffs <laughs> just barely. And you were right, yeah, yeah. It was uh, Tim Duncan went first uh, from Wake Forest. Keith Van Horn, wow. out of Utah, went second to Philly, and then Chauncey Billups went to Boston. And Chauncey Billups ended up being. I think close to a Hall of Famer, if not, you they know, traded him that and they traded, season, didn't right? They? they they didn't wait. I mean, he had kind of a rough start to his career, and they didn't even wait a full season at fifty one games into wow. his first season. They traded him to the Toronto Raptors, and then he didn't even stick around with Toronto. He was on Denver for two years after that, then Minnesota for two years after that, and then finally found a home with the Pistons, where he was um, the leader, uh, one of the leaders of that two thousand four championship team. Uh, just to bring it back to the Spurs, because you were actually writing about them, and uh, paradoxically, even though, as we just mentioned, they're kind of outside the playoff picture, I think our model gives them basically like coin flip odds to make the playoffs. They're 50-50 right wow. now, basically. Yet, this might be one of Greg Popovich's best coaching performances of his whole career, right? So it's it's kind of falling apart on them right now. I, I was down there a week ago to talk to him about some of this. And asked him just how challenging has this been, and you know he, he kind of had the the Thibodeau sound to him, where he was basically saying, "No one's crying for us, you know. You just got to kind of put everything in the middle and, and play." But yeah, I mean they've they've had so many injuries. I mean, um, I wrote a story that now I don't feel quite as bad about at the beginning of the year. I think saying the Spurs might not be Spurs level good this year. I remember year. that, yeah. And immediately, you know, on the Reddit pages and um, you know, in my email box in the comments. People saying like, oh, you know, now we got another idiot taking this stance where, you know, saying that the Spurs are not going to be good. But I, you could kind of tell at the beginning of the season, and, and this is what I said in the story, that the, the Kawhi injury was really odd just because it, he had already had the time off from the ankle. And, you know, the fact that he still wasn't totally recovered with the quad was a little strange um, that he had that much time off, didn't play during the summer, and still wasn't really feeling ready to play, and that there was no timeline on when he'd come back. And so that was odd. You knew Tony Parker was going to miss the time. Jonathan Simmons had had been, uh, I think, just signed with signed Orlando. With Orlando yeah. And just those three guys by themselves, I think, made up 70 or 71% of all the drives to the basket that the Spurs had last year. And so you're talking about having to replace all that production for as long as it takes those two guys to come back. You're obviously not getting Simmons back. One of the guys you're replacing Kawhi with is Rudy Gay, who's coming off a ruptured Achilles. LaMarcus Aldridge had just had a really rough postseason, particularly once Kawhi went down in that Golden State series. And so there were a lot of reasons to kind of doubt the Spurs, other than the fact that it was the Spurs. Uh, Pal Gasol, they just... Uh, signed back on a, a pretty expensive deal, Aldridge giving an extension to for pretty big money, and stuff that just doesn't really seem like it fits the modern NBA in every single way, where guys that you don't really consider to be traditional rim protectors necessarily, uh, a guy or two that you kind of think is more of a, a power forward in some ways, depending on how you look at these guys. And so and there were just a lot of things I didn't like. But beyond that... Um, so many young guys in the rotation uh, for the Spurs and, and guys that you're depending on at point guard. Uh, you know, 
Kyle Anderson being one of the more experienced guys that they're putting out there along with some of your, your older vets. Uh, and the fact that he, he held it together, the fact that they were a three seed for the majority of the season, kind of right there with Minnesota, the fact that he had them in that position before the injuries just started to pile up too much. And now, as recently as Monday when they played against Houston, not having Aldridge, not having Kawhi, um, I think Rudy Gay played that night. But just all these guys that are out, um, Pau Gasol has kind of been in and out of the lineup the last couple games. And that that's a lot to overcome when you've got young players that have never played this much in their lives playing uh, that much. And, and Popovich still getting them to a point where they were top three for two-thirds of the season is is really impressive. He won't get the coach of the year votes that he normally does, I don't think. But this is a, a different sort of team that doesn't necessarily know his system in and out uh, the way that most of his teams in the past have. Yeah, and we, we talked about this uh, in preparation for the show, that this team might be one of the kind of most oddly constructed in the sense that you have a lot of players who are kind of past their prime. They're 30 or older. Uh, Aldridge, Gasol is 37. Danny Green is even 30. Manu Ginobili is getting significant minutes at 40. Tony Parker at 35. Rudy Gay is 31 now, which makes me feel old. Uh, (laughs) And then you also have a lot of guys who are kind of before their prime, right? Like Kyle Anderson is 24. DeJounte Murray is playing a big role. He's 21. Uh, Forbes is 24. Uh, Even Davis Bertans, he's 25. Maybe you could call that um, uh, prime age. The only one who's really in like that traditional sort of like 26 to 29 range as Patty Mills uh, at age 29. So it's it has to be one of the teams, especially among teams that have actually had success this season, even if they don't make the playoffs, they're close to it and have a pretty good record, that uh, has such a bimodal distribution of where their minutes are coming from, where it's either guys that are really old and kind of past their prime or guys that are really young and haven't yet gotten into their prime. Uh, okay, so that'll do it for this week's show. Uh, Chris, it was great having you in studio, as always. I love being here. Thank you. Uh, our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. You uh, can keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. Maybe we'll do another mailbag episode before too long. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're also there, whether it's a listen tab of the ESPN app or just on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Wherever you find us, be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle in absentia, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.